Welcome to Leverage Masters, airing weekly on Tuesdays at 12 Eastern and on demand on iTunes and Blog Talk Radio. Leverage Masters hosts Jack Humphrey and Gina Gaudio-Graves discuss leverage strategy with guest leveragists. Be sure to subscribe to Leverage Masters in your favorite podcatcher for great tips and case studies on using leverage to achieve your biggest goals much faster. And you're listening to The Leverage Masters. This is Andrea Adams-Miller, your co-host with Gina Gaudio-Grace. Gina Gaudio-Grace will be with us shortly. She is uh, attending a funeral of a Marine who was highly decorated, uh, who I believe is a family member. So we always want to send our love and respects and wishes for their family that um, they have beautiful memories to help heal their hearts uh, while they're in um, mourning and grief. And on Leverage Masters, we're here always to help you find your world and find your life in such a way that you can um, really be open and experience what's possible for you and really explore what else is happening in the world to leverage your business and your life to the highest ability. And because I am managing everything from my phone today, we are going to pull our guest on, Tony Boudot, right away. Tony, are you able to uh, say hello? I am here. Can you hear me? I can. Great. Awesome. Because Gina always does all of the management of the board, uh, which is really funny. I'm the executive producer, but she does all the board opping. <laughs> <laughs> we have a, a, a and it's uh, she's actually it's her show, but she made me co- she hired me as an executive producer a couple of years ago, and then upgraded me to a co-host, and um, I get all the guests and uh, get the shows lined up. But she does all the board operation, and uh, sure enough, today I go to do the board operating, and it's saying no, now you need to have this uh, Chrome instead of um, Google <laughs> instead of that, and I'm like, oh wow, nothing like downloading and upgrading technology two minutes where you got to be on the air (laughs) yeah i think we've all been there in this uh, day and age right (laughs) yeah it's hysterical because uh, it's all about flexibility and adaptability and business and uh, for those of you uh, who have not had the chance to know who tony badeau is i am loving him i had the pleasure of reading his book profitability over the weekend and he has really given me a, a really good knowledge um, to expand my own knowledge, I guess we'll say, about what I know about human interaction and business and so forth that made me feel like some of the things I'm doing, I'm doing right, and things that I could be doing better and how that can work for me. So let me tell you a little bit more about him. Um, he's been a go-getter and a businessman since he was 11 years old, and he was really good at getting people to connect with him in business as a lawn care mower. I mean, like, talk about awesomeness. He was an early entrepreneur, as was I, and uh, he really knew how to be able to connect to people, and that's what's made him so, I think, amazing in my personal opinion. He's the number one best-selling author and the founder and co-founder of five different companies, from customer experience consulting to small business training to television. He is an international speaker, and he spoke for both personal growth seminars and and Uber Nerdy Technology Conferences, which I'm getting ready to head to one right now. I can't wait. And he does business blogs, personal growth essays, and he's a children's book author as well. And he also coaches executives, and he also taught high school for a year and in college uh, as well. So he is very passionate about a lot of different things. And one thing they do as a hobby, as family, is they are Nashville Irish Step Dancers, which I actually have seen um, some different shows on that and love the music and love it. And he also is um, a great philanthropist because he financially supports sustainable villages in Africa and Haiti. So welcome to the show here. We are so excited to have you here and excited to know that your children are Guinness Book World Record owners or, or title owners or title holders, whatever you call that when you get one. <laughs> I, I'm not even sure what to call it either. It's uh... It, it, it's fascinating. We with, with the with the girls, we started at a very early age, and we said, you know what. We we could raise them so they are ordinary and believe ordinary is ordinary, or we could raise them so that they believe extraordinary 
is ordinary. And that's, that's just not from a perspective of being better than other people, but always being better than their previous self. And uh, so the Guinness Book of World Record, they don't think much of it. They think they're like, uh, what? And I'm like, oh, you don't understand. That's good. <laughs> yeah. It's a really, really cool thing. My mom and dad are part of a Guinness Book of World Records for having uh, being so many people on antique uh, one-wheeled and I think it was just the one-wheeled bicycles in costume. So, <laughs> or not one-wheeled, um, the big wheel with the little wheel. I can't think what those are called. Um, but that's what, that's what they did here in Finley, Ohio, in front of our college. So my parents uh, owned several different bikes like that and used to ride in parades and so forth. And actually did uh, uh, mar- uh, um, a mile, 100 miles in, with one of those. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Talk about That'd be quite the ride. Yeah. Quite the ride. <laughs> Yeah, that, yeah, well, talk about non-cushioning on your tuchus there. That's uh, pretty interesting. So you were an early business owner at 11.2. What made you decide that you wanted to go in Molans at an early age? Well, it's uh, I come from a big family. I'm number seven of 12. I'm the fourth boy in the family. So there was kind of this lineage like, okay, let's go out and earn some money. So my older brothers started cutting lawn when they were – probably sixth, seventh, eighth grade, somewhere in that time frame, you know, for neighbors and that. And um, I'm, I'm quite distanced from my older siblings. The, my next oldest brother is three years older than me. So he was actually going into like a real job, if you will, you know, working at a restaurant or something like that in our local area. And uh, he was going to either let all of his, all of his, uh, uh, you know, customers, clients go, uh, not that he called them at the time, but he was going to let all these lawns go. And the other option was he could hand them on to me. So for a few weeks, he, he brought me under his wing. He said, this is what you do. And, uh, after that, I was the one that was showing up. So I kind of inherited a few of the lawns and, uh, I'll admit I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, wasn't the best lost a few of them right away. Um, you know, but I was, uh, fifth or sixth grade at the time, I guess. And, um, mm-hmm. But went on went on from there and, and actually built it up. It was interesting and built it up to I think I had about sixteen clients uh, before I decided to more or less exit that that and go into a more traditional stable type job environment. Um, work construction and I worked uh, at a water park and that uh, did a lot of different things as I was growing up and to earn my way, you know, so I'd be able to go to college and that. Um, and so I think it was just it was always this passion of of being in control um, of a kind of of your own destiny of being able to grow things, make things better and get rewarded for that. Um, and I, I think that's a really important thing for people to, to look at is like, what are you passionate about? And one of my brothers, you know, told me years later is like, you've always found a way to love whatever you do. And I think that's one of the key things that really has driven me is that, you know, I, I find things, I may not love them to start with, but I find a way to really just be passionate about what I do. And uh, it, it, it turns into uh, almost like a hobby or something, you know, that that's enjoyable. So um, I just keep doing it. I love that. You've, you've said a, a couple things that um, get me, get me tickled. Um, so one of them is passionate about what you do. And, you know, like for me, like my husband literally the other day, I, even though I was telling this, we've been together 25 years and this is a repetitive thing, but even just two or three days ago, he's like, you, you look like nervous. And he's like, can't you just sit here and watch TV and relax? And I'm like, no. And he's like, why? And I said, because I don't want to watch what's on like no so maybe if there was something specific that interests me that was on that me, then I could and I said but I have things that I want to do and I want to work I love my work so I really just want to go to my office and do my work that's that's what I want to do like they I just like it's so odd that I can't get it through people's head that no, I'm really happy doing that. I want to do it. And uh, the other part was when you said uh, take control of your destiny. Um, I wrote a book that I haven't completed yet um, <laughs> uh, that Robert Allen um, is doing the forward for me. Um, it's uh, called Find and Fulfill Your Destiny. And then I have uh, another radio show I do with a friend and client of mine, and it's called um, Your Destiny. So it's um, – living first class while making red carpet connections to find, fulfill, and take control of your destiny. So it's taking all of our business names and merging them together. So she, her stuff is living first <laughs> class. I'm making the red carpet connection. 
she, I do find and fulfill your destiny, and she does take control of your destiny. So I said, we'll just merge it all together and call it Wincho. <laughs> nice. And the third the third part is that um, I was 11 when I first started business as well. And, you know, and the more I hear different people that we interview over the last, you know, well, I've been doing radio for, I don't know, maybe 19 years, but specifically more of a business show um, the last four. And I meet so many people that really started really young um, doing, having, actually doing business. So, so for me, um, I was the investor and one of the key I don't, I don't even know what they called us then. I know I was the investor. We had a Ben's box. So um, I don't know, would I be a trustee or a, a, a key hold? I don't know what I was, but the person who helped make decisions because I was the investor. So I paid for everything so that we had the money to get the um, goods so we could sell pencils, erasers, pads of paper, and then eventually jackets and sweatshirts. So we even upgraded. So we had an e-commerce in our fifth and sixth grades. <laughs> That's very cool. The, the things yeah. that are possible are so amazing. Um, and, and that's, you know, I, I was thinking back last night, actually, as I was, you know, kind of prepping for this. is like, okay, I started with the lawn care and, you know, did, did a number of things in between there. But then in college, the one I often forget that I did while I was in college was um, my sister and I went to the same college. She was a year older than me. And she was over in the in the women's dormitories on one side of campus. I was on the men's dormitories on the other side of campus. And there was, like, no real snack bar open after, like, maybe 10 p.m. And, you know, students, hmm. what do they do? They need snacks, you know. And uh, so we went to Costco. Yeah, 11 those, to you midnight, know, 11 to 1 a.m., you need to eat. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, we went out, we bought snacks, we invested in the snacks. We had we had the, the sodas, you know, for the refrigerator, whatever else in that. And, and we actually were selling them in our dormitories because the, the, the machines were – Again, in another location on campus, they weren't right in the dormitories. So we took advantage of the opportunity in that, and uh, kind of had an honor system. But people would people would come in, they'd buy stuff out of the refrigerator, or buy the candy bars or whatever we had there, and um, it actually helped us pay for some of the expenses around school. You know, some of the extra things that we wanted to do. So there, there's always always a way to be in business and and to be hustling, if you will. You know, I think that's a good thing for people to learn. That's fantastic. I, you know, and it's funny now. I'm I'm thinking nowadays if students did the same thing that you're doing, then like my, my mind auto, automatically goes to like joint ventures, and I'm like, oh my gosh, they need to like, um, you know, needed to, um, you know, merge with the other like the people who did tutoring and the people who were smell, uh, smelling selling weed, and you know, so that way <laughs> they could, the people who have the munchies need to know where this is so they can go and buy food and. <laughs> You can you can <laughs> increase your networking it, yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, increase your networking because they're going to do it anyway. So you might as well have found everybody else who was selling something that went with the products that you needed. Okay, who had alcohol and needed pop to mix it with? Okay, it's over here. <laughs> uh, uh, I guess that's. Um, I guess no matter what level, I'm always looking for strategic partnerships. This is kind of how my brain works. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, nice. Uh, yeah, that's really smart that you and your sisters, uh, you and your sister did that. I mean, that 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 was um, definitely you found an area where there was a problem and you created a solution for it, and that worked. And you know, it really seems like the people right now in our world who are really making it are the people who are doing such as that. You know, they're looking at COVID and what's going on, and they're creating new opportunities and new possibilities um, based on what they're doing. Uh, I, I wondered what your take was. Um, I've been really impressed with people who have a brick-and-mortar building who, like, sell clothes or other products who have taken to going through their store and then showing their products and talking about it and have people trying things on or they try on things and say this is what this is and this goes with that. And then it's like they've created their own home shopping network for their brick and mortar. I have found that fascinating I, I haven't because seen so that. many other people shut I down. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen that, but I think it's absolutely a brilliant idea because – People can't go have the experience of trying on the clothes or matching the clothes. And the next best thing then is, you know, for someone else to do it for them so they can kind of put themselves in that mindset um, in, into the emotional state of, well, I think that might look good on me, you know, and, and let me give that a try. So that's a really cool idea. I have not seen that yet. 
Yeah, I've seen a couple people do it, and I'm like, yes, that is so awesome because so many other people just, like, shut down and stopped. And, and people still wear clothes, and people still get dressed, and people still need things, and, you know, at, at all kinds of different levels, you know. So maybe shoes aren't the most important right now unless you're going for walks. I mean, and um, slippers are a new commodity, I suppose. You know, they're even more important than ever because you're wearing them more hours. <laughs> Um, but I love what you mentioned about experience. So tell us more about how that came to light for you, that really it's about the human experience and the human interaction of those experiences that really lead people to being in alignment with each other. Well, it's it's been something that's evolved and emerged over 20 years, really, uh, to be honest with you. Um, I started out, I moved to Nashville where I live now about 20, actually 20 years ago this summer. And, um, I took a job as a marketing analyst. And what that really meant was I was understanding why people were opening their direct mail and then why are they were responding to us? Cause I worked for a direct mail company in the financial services arena, selling insurance to customers of banks and credit unions, and credit cards. And what we were trying to understand is why one or 2% of the people might open the mail and decide that they want it to buy the particular insurance that we were offering. And then, you know, it was a very profitable business, but you know, what struck me is what a waste. We have 98 to 99 pieces of mail that we send out the door. It never, it never gets uh, responded to. Could we not do a better job? And that's with statistical analysis and everything else, all the demographics, everything we had at that time. I just, it, it was passionate uh, to, to look at and say, why are we wasting this? Why can't we do a better job? And the tools were what they were at the time. But for doing that for about four years, and, you know, we made some major improvements and things like that for that company, I went on into the hospitality industry uh, for Gaylord Entertainment and Gaylord Hotels, which is based here in Nashville. And they, they asked me to come in to help build out their analytics system. So I kind of became a homegrown business intelligence CRM operational analytics expert. Uh, in, in the midst of that, I earned my MBA from the University of Tennessee, so I was uh, getting the, the knowledge I needed to do that at the same time. But again, it was all around decision-making. What causes a customer to make a decision to buy a product or not buy a product or to, to stay at our hotels or not stay at our hotels? And in 2007, I walked into the, to a you know, weekly meeting with my vice president and he uh, he said, you know, I, I was kind of zoned out of the meeting. I wasn't really paying attention. And all of a sudden I heard my name and I, you know, snapped to attention all of a sudden. And he said that uh, Tony's going to now be in charge of all customer experience for the brand. And I sat there in a bit of shock, like, uh, wait, I'm, I'm over analytics and now I'm on customer experience. What does that mean? And I don't even think we actually called it customer experience. I think it's probably customer satisfaction or something like that is what we called it then. So I went back to my office and that I'm sitting here staring out the window and it's one of those cold January mornings and I'm like, I don't know a thing about this. I've never written a survey. I avoided all the psychology classes that I could. I only took the mandatory ones I needed to to get through my undergrad and graduate degree. And here I am and I know customer satisfaction is about psychology, but I really don't know how to write a survey or any of this stuff. So I literally just started to mm. Google and try to understand what is it, what is a survey, how do you write a survey, what is satisfaction? And, and that was going on, and then there was a, a convergence in my life at the same time where I started to – I read my first personal development book that spring as well. Um, again, it was just a convergence of events that uh, seemed unrelated at the time, and it was actually Jack Canfield's Success Principles that I read in 2007. And as that came together, I began to realize that there's something more that I really wasn't aware of about life, and it was this idea of human experience. I mean, we all have experiences, so we're like, well, duh. But we don't think about what experience really is. And is our life just our experiences? Is, uh, is reality what we experience, or do we experience something other than reality or just a portion of reality? These kind of big questions start coming through my mind. And over time in my job, I began to, to, to develop the surveys and to do that work in the customer experience side. At the same time, studying deeply studying psychology, I got into, uh, there, actually found a, a mentor and coach that I was being coached personally by um, and going through some pretty significant transformations in my life. And as that's all unfolding, I'm getting this, this really interesting 
convergence of the transformation I'm seeing in my life, what I'm, what I'm understanding customers are looking for. And so I go on to do some pretty, you know, fun and interesting things with Gaylord and with the team I had there and then moved on in 2009 to start my own company where I was doing consulting in the customer experience space. And then as that time progressed over the next, you know, 10 or 11 years, there were some key points during that time where I discovered these almost like a, a, an algorithm or a formula. Like if you do A, B, and C, it's going to result in X, Y, and Z. And as I got more and more clear about that, it, it came out as this, what I call the admiration equation. And it's this idea of if companies do specific things for the right customers, it will lead those customers to a state of admiration, awe, and gratitude where they will just tell everyone they know about how amazing that company is. And as a result, we'll, we'll just cause the sales to go through the roof and, and marketing costs to drop and, and all these wonderful things to happen from a business perspective. But it has at its core this whole idea of human experience or what are we experiencing as human beings in this time-space reality. Fantastic. And um, so why did you avoid all the psychology classes in college? What, what, what were you, what did you believe or perceive to believe about them that you avoided them? Um, you know? I, I kind of grew up in, I grew up in an era where like in, in kind of in a family and, and that, you know, that didn't really look at psychology or real science. It was kind of that, you know, a bit woo woo and, and it's not real science. I have brothers who are engineers and, and, and that. So it mm. wasn't provable like real science, if you will. Um, and, yeah. and at the same time, you know, it's like, I, I wasn't really that interested in it. It just, it, it didn't, didn't appeal to me. It just felt like, I, I guess when I got into business, I, I always saw myself and I used this term for many years. I was a hard numbers guy. I like to look at what you could actually measure, processes, you know, um, decisions, uh, things that you could actually put a number to. We had, you know, 50 people go through this mm -hmm. process and 10 of them were, were failures and 40 of them were successes or something like that, right? And, and I built the analytical systems around that. But psychology was soft to me. It was like you got models of thinking about things and maybe they did this and maybe they did that. And it, was, it seemed unprovable. And that was, you know, my lack of awareness about psychology and understanding it. So I was like, why would I waste my time studying something like that when I could be over here studying something that really applies, that I can really measure, that I can really add value to companies with? Um, and the irony of it is I, I get so good at what I was doing on the hard numbers side that that's exactly why my VP gave me customer experience because he figured I could solve the problems there. Interesting. Well, so now in hindsight, now that you've, you know, you know the psychology piece to it, and interestingly enough, it sounds like you knew it all along. You just didn't know that you had an insight to it. Um, do you, with the analytics that you've done, uh, do you see it more as a tangible um, asset now where it can be measured in, in, in a different way? <laughs> oh, very much so. Very much so. And a couple examples. Um, and this is really what opened, the, opened my eyes to it is when I took over the customer experience uh, programs for Gaylord, I was very much into technology and that's why I said, okay, how do we figure this out? And, and at that point in time, we had, uh, I believe it was three, uh, three women who were working for one of our contractors uh, that ran our survey process. And they were literally reading every comment that came back on the survey and then in, in an Excel spreadsheet coding that to say, okay, it goes into this category or that category. And there's like 350 categories that they would right. – you know, someone complaining about the front desk or someone complaining about check-in or you know, torn sheets or something like that. And every couple of days I would get a call from them and I said, okay, here's, here's some things we don't know how to classify them. We don't know which category they would go into and they'd read me the comment. And I'm sitting here thinking like, I have no clue where these things should go. Like, what have you done before? And I realized how imperfect this process was. And we were making strategic decisions in the business around these imperfect uh, analytics. And so I started to look out there and say, what is out there? And I had some, some knowledge already about text mining platforms, which basically you take uh, written uh, documents or, you know, the comments on surveys and it could analyze what was said and categorize them consistently based on rules. So 
I was able to, to convince my vice president, let's go ahead and get one of these tools in here. We, we got it in there, and we were able to very quickly um, save the company hundreds of millions of dollars with one decision when we were able to show that if we do X, it's going to result in Y, and it's not the right path for the company to take. And immediately that caught the attention of people. So I kind of became this, this early celebrity, if you will, I was speaking on stages, interviewed for a bunch of articles back in 2008 and 2009 around text mining. And I took that and expanded my, my work there into understanding and really studying language because what happens is as we're talking, we all have these, these subconscious um, patterns that we're following. It's based on our belief systems. It's based on the wiring of our brain, all of that. And so we use language in particular ways in particular contexts. So as an example, someone who, who would talk about uh, a hotel uh, and they say the word hotel, they have a particular picture of what that looks like and what that feels like and how much it's going to cost. It's called a mental model. And someone who talks about a resort has a different picture of what that looks like and what that feels like and how much that might cost. And so for one of, my comp one of the companies I worked with, one of the clients, they were having this challenge, and we realized that those people who talked about it as being a hotel were, were more price sensitive. They didn't like paying the high prices. Those people who talked about it as a resort had this understanding subconsciously that prices were going to be higher. And so we had to help them with their marketing to realize that don't ever talk about this. None of your employees can talk about this as a hotel. It's a resort. And that changing of the mental model changed how people perceives it, perceive it. It changes how they spend their money. It changes who decides they're going to go there because some people say, my self-image, you know, I'm not the type of person that goes to a resort. That's for the rich people, right? There's kind of that mentality for some people. Um, other people say, well, I'm going to go to the resort because that's where I'm going to relax and really enjoy myself. And so they choose to go there. So the, the real nuanced decisions we make in marketing directly affect who we attract for customers, and it also affects the actual experience they have with our product or our service. And that feeds right back in where people will complain if they had the wrong impression of what you were going to provide. So it's become much more real and tangible for me. It's very, still very much an intangible, but there are things that we can really measure now that we've never been able to measure before, and the technology and the tools available out there really help us do this. Yeah, I, I, I'm excited about what you're talking about. When I did my uh, PhD work for, I have a degree in um, what is it in uh, public health, community education, and health promotion. Um, all my coursework and my dissertation work was on the biopsychosocial factors of online support groups. And ironically enough, um, I never got my degree because we had a flood and I couldn't defend chapter four and five because all my electronic and hard copy information was destroyed in that flood because um, it was on floppy disks in 2007 which is really funny it's not that long ago and yet that seems like archaic you know yep. I still have those in case they ever invent something that makes the rust go away and the data is still secured so that I can actually defend that and, and complete that degree so it's so funny that I did all that work and then and, and read um, by the way talking about text mining I read 98,583 emails looking for different assets of information to help make, you know, to follow up on my, you know, theories and conclusions for the study. Uh, interestingly enough, our world now with COVID, it has created, I'm like, wait a minute, I'm seeing things like I study now, now that we're online and almost everything has become an online support group, including radio shows, you know, and all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute. And all of a sudden my research is now important again because it addresses the biopsychosocial factors of how people operate, how they function, think and feel, you know, how they make money or don't make money. And it's been very interesting because um, I started going through things and I actually found an I found an, um, a very loose abstract of what I wrote. So I have a very brief summary of all that work I did that has been lo you know, was lost to me since 2007. So it's 
it's pretty exciting um, because, and then, you know, in your book, you um, talk about other uh, modes of how we get feedback, not just with text, but in looking at, um, you know, like they have heat sensors now that can see where your eyes scan on the screen and the pixelation and where people touch and, you know, what, what they do on screens and then other biofeedback. And I happen to also be uh, trained in biofeedback and EEG um, that I use for health information because I also own a intimacy and relationship business. And so I um, use feed, biofeedback for other things. And so all of this stuff, it's hysterical how it ends up re, um, oh, being reapplicable to other things as we adapt and change with technology that uh, we can really look at things differently. And of course, um, with uh, neuro-linguistic programming and hypnosis and hypnotic language, that all even comes into play even more for me. And those are things I've been studying in the last couple of years. Uh, what, what's your What's your take and philosophy on that? Like, you know, because they've talked about that in politics the last couple of years about like how speeches for people winning political office and so forth are more persuasive with language. You know, I think there is there there are pros and cons. Um, and I, I think it's, it's something that we have to be aware of so that we're cautious and uh, so that we can know when we're being influenced. Um, mm -hmm. And let me, let me start by this because I'm choosing my words very carefully here. Um, let, me, let me start with this. I, there's, there's a difference between influence and manipulation. And... They, a lot of people may think that there's there's synonyms, but manipulation has has a connotation of being for the benefit of the person doing it at the expense of the person receiving it or the person being manipulated. And so mm -hmm. I look at manipulation, when I use that word, I very specifically use it in the context where someone is trying to take advantage of another person at their detriment. And so influence, on the other hand, is something where I believe, you know, I speak about it as positive influence. We are, we are trying to help someone move in a direction that we know will help them accomplish the objectives, the goals, the outcomes that they want to achieve. So influence is about helping someone overcome something or move past a mental block, an emotional block, a belief to help them achieve what they truly believe that they want to achieve, what they truly say that they want to achieve. So in, in influence, we're helping, we're helping them. In manipulation, we're harming them. And I think it, it, it becomes a little stickier when you talk about it from a political perspective. And uh, I'll kind of line it out this way. When you've got one side that, that believes they're influencing but in fact, they're manipulating the other side. And this happens on both sides mm -hmm. of the aisle. It doesn't matter. They believe they're doing what's, what's best for others. And that right there is a clue. If you think you're doing, and, and you justify it by saying, I'm doing what's best for someone else, is it what they have told you they want? Is it the outcomes that they want? Or is it what you think is best for them? And I think anytime we get into that space where we think something is best for someone else, even if they don't acknowledge it, we get into the really, really dangerous area of potentially being manipulative, even if our intentions are good. Um, I think if, if we go down the path and we think, well, we have to help them, they just don't, aren't, don't understand, we've got we've to manipulate them into, into doing this or taking these actions, and which is, you know, comes back to the speeches and, and, and the, the marketing that's used, the, the artificial intelligence that gets applied in particular ways. I think in those cases, we need to step back and say, if we're trying to justify the, the language that we use, the behaviors we have, the type of marketing we're doing, because we think it's best for someone else, we got to pause. And I think first we have to step back and say, why don't we make them aware? Why don't we help them? develop this level of awareness about the possibilities, about the problems out there. And when we develop that awareness in them, then we can have the conversation where they make a free choice around which path and what outcomes they want to go down. Um, I, I think if you, if you do other than that, it becomes very manipulative. And, and I have to be very aware of this in the work I do because I have worked with companies where they could take the type of analytics and insights I provide and they could go manipulate people into doing things. 
that uh-huh. the people have yeah. no intention of doing. Um, but once you begin to understand psychology and neuroscience and how, how the mind and the brain and the emotions really work in individuals, we get into a really dangerous ground. Um, and I don't say that to be scary I, I, or to, to cause people to, to be afraid. It is empowering because we can get over things that have held us back for generations. But at the same time, that same, those same triggers can be used to further push us down into the hole that we've been living in for, for generations. Yeah. Um, well, I've certainly been noticing that with um, the way the information and news about COVID is <clears throat> responded to. So people who already have a tendency to be anxious or uh, concerned or nervous about things, um, the way the news has come across has allowed that to be exaggerated to such an extreme that people are literally in their houses scared to death to be to be alive <laughs> and and it's so frustrating for me because I do have tools and um skill sets to be able to assist or to uh, but if 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 it serves them to be that fearful um then they don't want it they don't want to let that go, and so you know that th- that's what they need to hold on to. Or and and at the same time, I I need to be not biased and say that's okay that they that 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 they're that they're that cautious and so forth. And and it's not even that I'm upset with people being cautious. It's the people who are in a panic state where they literally can't breathe and think that they're going to die tomorrow. That they like if they. <clears throat> go like that they're like oh my god i think i have covid i'm gonna die you know and, and it's like um or you just have dust in your throat you know uh, you know so so for me i'm the opposite i'm always thinking of great positivity and i'm you know i i take research and numbers and look at them um and look at how many people have been looked at how many you know what how many people have been affected and because i know the manipulation of numbers that it, we can we can we can take a study of anything and make it mean one thing or another. I remember reading, um, because I have the intimacy and relationship business, I remember reading a study where um, the conclusions of the study were that um, uh, teens were more like, teen pregnancy was more likely to occur because of the presence of pillows. And I always thought that study was hysterical because I think it was not the presence of pillows that was the problem. I think it was the lack of parental eyes <laughs> that was the problem. So depending on how you look at the statistics right. of those numbers. <laughs> well, and, you know, there's something that, that I'd love to ch- jump in here. Um, this is something I try to help people understand a lot is, is, is when we talk about panic and fear, you know, when someone, get, when someone feels fear, there are four typical responses. Let me see if I can remember them off. They're all starting with F. So there is fight, flight, which means running away from it or avoiding it, right? There is freeze, which means we stop in our tracks, literally can't, can't do with anything. And then there's fawn. And there's, there's a different word. Some people use a different word for fawn, but fawn is like we kind of submit to or, or give into. Um, and, and so those are kind of the four responses with fear. And we see people reacting. People see people, you know, on social media being willing to to fight. And and it doesn't matter what their belief is, whether they believe COVID is real or not real, whether they believe masks will help or not help, whether they believe uh, that the quarantine is, is good or bad, right? It doesn't matter what they believe fundamentally. Many of them are, are coming from a state of fear because they're willing to fight or they're willing to flee. And, and that's where we see a lot of it. Some people are in freeze mode. Some people are in fawn mode. Mm-hmm. And so to take a step back from that, though, and say, well, what is it that we're really afraid of? And I, and I think that that's a key thing that if we can start to dig into that, we can unlock some of this in a different way. I'm never going to be able to convince someone, or very, very unlikely I'm going to be able to convince someone who is fighting with me about my position on social media Instead, I need to step back and say, okay, what is it that they're afraid of? And one of the the discoveries I had in all this research I've been doing uh, around emotions and human psychology, and that is that I don't believe people are actually afraid of events. 
In other words, people are not afraid of dying. People are not afraid of, of getting sick. People are not afraid of losing their freedom. And, you know, if, if, if that were the, their, their perspective on things. What I believe they're afraid of is the unpleasant emotion that they imagine they will feel if that event happens. And so I'm, I'm, I'm parsing this down and kind of being nuanced here. Whenever an event happens, we have a feeling associated with that event. We have thoughts associated with that event. But in this moment now, we're imagining a future event happening. And then we, we start to imagine the way the brain works. We start to imagine how we're going to feel if that event were to happen. And that's how our brain actually just makes decisions on what, we, what we're going to do. We're going to go left or right. We're going to buy this or not buy this. It happens in daily life. But in this case, when we look at COVID-19, we're, we're thinking about the possible events in the future. We're imagining what might happen. And we're imagining how we're going to feel and what we might gain or lose and how we're going to feel about those gains or losses. And it's the unpleasantness of what we imagine, which we're actually afraid of. We, we are afraid of feeling that unpleasant emotion, whatever it is. And I wouldn't call it a negative emotion or a positive emotion. It's just unpleasant. And as a result of that, we, we point to the event, which in our imagination triggered the unpleasant feeling. And we say, we don't want that to happen. We don't want to die. We don't want to get sick. We don't want to go to a hospital. We don't want to wear a mask. We don't want to be dehumanized, whatever it is, right? But the, fundamentally, it comes back to the emotion we imagine we would feel if that event happened. And the power of knowing that is if we can step back and say, what else could be possible? What else could I imagine? We begin to realize that it is only in our imagination that that event currently exists and it's only in our imagination although we feel it fully feel it in our body it's only in our imagination that we triggered that particular unpleasant feeling so fear has no real place right now fear is a very powerful and useful emotion when it's properly applied like a hundred thousand years ago or maybe ten thousand years ago it was really relevant mm -hmm. to us when we were in certain situations, it would protect us from the wild beasts that were hidden, you know, in, in the dark. But today, we have evolved as a species in so many different ways. I mean, look what's happened in the last 150 years, much less the last 10 years. Our, our, our fear triggers have not evolved as fast as everything else in our lives. And so they are triggered by things that don't exist because we're imagining what might happen. So that was kind of a long right. tangent there, but I think it's really important for people to be aware of that in that there's far less for us to fear if we, if we just breathe and pause and look at other possibilities. Well, I, I appreciate that because that, that's one of the things that, you know, I focus on a lot with my clients is ever since I learned um, how to be, you know, got my training in being an NLP practitioner and um, I got a system down to removing limiting beliefs down to about eight minutes um, for a different layer. I mean, obviously if somebody's got uh, multiple layers of something, there's a couple couple processes that we go through. But I, I'm, I've got this like down, I was like, I've been very impressed with this ability to get this down and like we can like remove things like really quickly um, if we can break, break, it, break it down in just a quick conversation and to, to release that and to let that go and, and to look at instead what's the possibility. So what's, what's ironic to me is it's, it's just as much as fear isn't there and can uh, manifest uh, all this um, um, illness and reaction and, you know, and panic and feel in your body, um, we can equally um, manifest positive by using the same tactics that fear causes for us, but by flipping it to a positive thing that we actually manifest that positive thing into occurring for us. And, um, when we can flip people from that scale, from the, the negative to the positive, how their whole life changes. It's just, I just find it very fascinating, very exciting with yeah, the neuroplasticity that I've seen. Yeah. Um, so I, I did want to ask more too about um, the profitability book because there were some things about it that got me super excited, um, especially because um, – 
you know, you had the opportunity to be on radio with Ken, Rashawn, and I, and Ken's our visionary, our creative, and the co-founder of the Keep Smiling movement. And then I'm the executive director, and so, like, um, I'm, I'm always looking to see how I can help his innovation come into play and move forward into the future. And at the same time, I need to have systems in place so that I can create sustainability and monetization um, and so I never want to put a cloud over him. And yet sometimes I almost feel like I, I sometimes I wish he was like a cockatiel or, you know, like at night I could put a blanket over him. So he's still, <laughs> so I can hurry up and catch up when I need to catch up before I let him go fly out the cage again. Cause he's got so many great ideas. So when I was looking at your whole idea of who's the prophet, who's the king and, um, you know, and how do they think and how do they function in that? I, I'm just really excited about that. I wondered if you'd share more about that, you know, especially when people are in small business, because that's a lot of our listeners. Absolutely. So in profitability, and uh, just for the listeners, uh, without seeing it, it's spelled P-R-O-P-H-E-T, profit, uh, the person who can see the future. We kind of did a play on words there because for a company to be profitable, in other words, to make a lot of money, the, the money that they want to make, they have to be able to be profitable. They have to be able to see the future. And so we did a play on words there for that, that purpose. And the subtitle kind of plays it out a little bit and says the revealing story of companies that succeed, fail, and bounce back. And the, the essence of it is that in every company, you have three different forces at work that you've really got to consider and you've got to be aware of. If you don't have all three of these, your company is probably going to have some problems. Or if, if any of these three forces dominate over the other ones for too long of a period of time, you're going to have, some, you're going to have challenges. We're going to have, you're going to go into that failure mode. And so those three forces, uh, we use an analogy going back to the, the days of the Greeks, the Romans, the Old Testament. You know, you can look back in, in ancient history, if you will. There's the priest. The priest is the one who tries to keep order, tradition, uh, structure. Uh, they, the priest does not like chaos. And in, essentially, in today's language, the priest does not typically like innovation. They like to do things the way they've always been done. This, you know, a phrase you probably hear in business. The, on the other side, you've got the prophet. The prophet is the person who's listening to the gods, or in this case, listening to the customers, kind of seeing the trends, seeing where the future of things are, and is always trying to be a visionary. And, and in some sense, maybe going beyond just visionary and actually innovating, inventing, creating new things, and trying to get the company to go in the direction of something new and something different and maybe doing something in a, in a better way than it's done it before. And they're trying to fix what isn't broken, you know, to some extent. And, and so there's, there's value and power and, and needs in both areas. The king is the force that tries to balance or moderate. And, and the king is the one who knows when should the prophet be leading, when should the priest be leading, and how do I get the two of them to work together? And, and I think it's an interesting analogy because if you look back to a lot of ancient, ancient texts, whether that be religious texts or mythology, you'll see this. there's, there's a, an imbalance between the priest and the prophet and the king who typically has to make the decision. If the king decides on the wrong side, the priest or the prophet may overthrow the king. And so the CEO is the king today. The priest is the, is the it's not necessarily a role. It may be played by the, the chief operations officer as an example, but it's more of a personality type or a character uh, a traits where they want to keep everything operating as it's always operated because they know that that's how the company works really well and that's how the company got to where it is today. And then you've got other people who play the role of prophets, who are the people who are out there saying, but, but if we did this and but if we did that and look at this idea and look at that idea. And priests tend to really get annoyed by prophets. Prophets tend to get really annoyed by priests. The, the, the king gets annoyed by both of them because they can't agree. And so you have these dynamics within your organization. Now, how do you deal with this? Well, one of the things that we talk about in the book extensively is what we call unfiltered listening. And that's where the king or the CEO of the company, the owner of the company, has to really listen to the customer, not just get you know surveys 
uh, or, or summary reports or the head of sales comes and says, yeah, I talked to my salespeople and, and they all heard this or these are the things we're hearing on the street. The CEO actually needs to go out there and sit down and talk with the customers and listen to the customers and get it straight from their mouth. That's why we call it unfiltered listening. It's not filtered by anyone who has an agenda, good or bad. It's not filtered by the priest. It's not filtered by the prophets. It comes directly to the king so the king can really hear what's going on. And that's a challenging thing to do because most kings, or in this case CEOs today, don't feel like they have time. Most business owners feel like they're stretched too thin. But I would say today, where we are right now with COVID-19 and, and all that's happening more than ever before, we have got to have unfiltered listening. We've got to be out there listening to the customers, listening to our clients if we're in the B2B space. Because if we don't, we are going to be trying to do business the way we used to do business when that's no longer either valid or even what our customers uh, want us to do because they need something else from us today. I, I, I just, in hearing you speak about that, you know, again, I'm cracking up because our whole nonprofit and how we, how we do things, you know, I see all of those characteristics come into play. And because there's only four of us that are on the board, you know, I can see all of our places and strategies and where we overlap and, you know, and, and come to all of that and, and the, why the move, movement is so beautiful. Cause the beautiful, the, that's the cool thing is the movement itself is so beautiful. And all these four people are so passionate about it. And, and ultimately that's what they care about is, is the same thing. We all just have a different approach to how the same thing is achieved. And and in hearing you speak, it dawns on me, um, year, years ago, I think it was like 2011, um, I wrote a book called Putting the Sizzle in Your Business Relationships. So it's instead of relationships, it's relationships. Um, so it's the ultimate guide to create, retain, and sustain successful real relationships with your clients, employees, partners, and vendors. Because that's what, at the time, what I was seeing is that people were, um, their relationships in business that there was um, a missing um, so often that they didn't know how to ignite that spark again. Um, it, it, it sometimes the spark at the beginning on how to um, have other businesses work with them or partner with them. They they didn't know how to be able to sell what they were doing and not in the sell where like they necessarily were buying something, but the buy-in of getting the mission of why they should work together or um, uh, continue to proceed. And then, you know, uh, uh, and then how to continue to ignite that fire so that they continued to have growth because I was noticing that too, that they would get in this stagnant area and then they would either break off the relationship or um, the business was faltering because they didn't know how to um, have growth in that relationship. And then the last part was, you know, re rekindling the passion because once they had growth and everything was status quo again, um, to me that was rekindling that, you know, how to stoke the coals. Um, that For me that was the innovation. So interestingly enough, the word innovation wasn't overly popular, you know, wasn't on the, my top of mind you know, back in um, 2011 or whatever when I wrote this. And, and I hadn't even done or touched or done anything with this book in, in 10 years. You know, um, well, I guess the last eight years. And so now that I'm looking at things, I'm, I'm seeing again that circular thing coming around. Like what was in the past is actually now more – more present for us more than ever. Um, and that kind of leads us back to our conversation when you were talking about like the things that you did as a teenager um, for your business in the lawn mowing and how you were so innovative with coming up ideas to solve problems um, as in, in the college to how you ended up using analytics to show you more of the human interaction and the human influence of why things are so important. There's just, it's, I'm, it, I guess right now, I've, have you read the book Pendulum? Are you familiar with that? I'm familiar with the book. I have not yet read it, though. Um, so our friend Michael Drew is a co-author on that with Roy Williams. And um, having read that several months ago, I'm now realizing that 
you and I's conversation over the last couple of days has allowed me to see a pendulum <laughs> swing here that I wasn't aware of before, of how some of the things that we were doing are now back again. <laughs> exactly. And there's, it's interesting, in profitability, we talk about the five endeavors that humans seek at their core. Like if you, if you keep asking why deep enough, you're going to get to one of these five things. And, and we don't have time to go through all five of them, but one of those is relationship. In other words, we crave human connectivity, and we will do illogical things to be connected with other human beings. Not everyone craves human connectivity at the same level, but many of us do. And that's one of the things that, that in today's environment, COVID environment, where we're in isolation, I would tell you that any company, no matter how big or small, they have got to find ways to be in front of their customers. They've got to find ways to build that relationship. Um, and, and to go a little deeper, in the book we talk about relationship is not knowing about your customer. No amount of data that I have will ever allow me to actually know you. What I define as a relationship is a shared experience. We both shared in a common experience, so we have a common place that we can come to and understand how each other reacted to that situation. And so that, you know, the, the, the relationship management systems, all those things, they're great because they have a lot of data, but relationships about that human connectivity that we had in a shared situation. And I think that if we get to understand that, and we start doing more Zoom calls and start doing more videos. We start seeing each other face-to-face -face right now, no matter what our business is. And I, I like the example you used in the beginning of the show about the retail stores where they're trying clothes on and demonstrating the clothes, and it's kind of like their own shopping network. That's exactly the type of creativity we need right now where people are feeling reconnected even though they're in their own home. I um, am very inspired by you. I am. I, I just. I was thinking about that because I remember reading in your book like a four, there was something about four something with relationships and it was shared experience and then a couple other things. I, I don't. I, I don't have them committed to memory yet. And so um, you talking about that was refreshing my memory. And then now I'm thinking about my dissertation work again on the on the online support groups about how people can overcome and learn how to manage because mine was on health specifically the women's health problems. But, um, and, but what I notice in reading the research then and what I'm seeing now is regardless of what the problem is, is when people achieve the 11 existential factors that my work was about, they are able to overcome and manage, um, to a point of positivity where they feel satisfied in, in their lives. And, and that's altruism, belonging, connectivity, uh, catharsis, um, familiarity. You know, the, those are five of the 11 that I can remember off the top of my head. And um, so now I'm, I'm seeing um, more of a interplay bet between the things I've done in the past and with the current things in business. So I want to thank you very much because I realize that um, something very good can come from out of all that work. <laughs> so thank you Absolutely. For that. Absolutely. Um, well, you know, these, um, Tony, these things come back around. Yeah, they do. Um, I was just going to remind people that you can check out Tony's site. It's Tony Budo, um, T O N Y B O D O H dot com, and um, and his business is Tony Budo International. So it's very easy to remember. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much for that. I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, Tony, I really appreciate talking to you. I actually would love to interview you more again. The more I talk to you, the more I'm uh, in, intrigued and um, excited about um, things that I've done in the past and uh, the correlation between things that you might be doing in the future. I'm, I'm excited to, to know where you're going to be going, and we are out of time, though, so um, we're not going to have that time to do that today. So thanks for everyone who's been listening to Tony Pado and I talking about profitability, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, ability, and uh, so that way you can leverage Elizabeth, your business to have more profitability. I'm so sorry. I couldn't jump in, Tony. My cousin's son passed away from a military training accident last week, and the funeral's been going on. And I came in about 20 minutes ago hoping to jump in, but my relatives were all messaging me back and forth. 
So I apologize. Well, well, lots of love to you, and you don't have to be sorry for an uh, accident that happened to someone else. And we're so glad that you were able to be there for your family. No, I'm and sorry. We're I didn't so get to spend time with Tony. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. I didn't get to spend well, you're allowed to be time with Tony. That. <laughs> yeah, because it sounded like a fantastic conversation that I missed most of. Yeah. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. We're out of time, and that was Gina Gaudio-Grace, our wonderful host, and I'm co-host Andrea Adams. Oh, Dr. Gina Gaudio-Grace and Andrea Adams-Miller, and we'll be back with you next week with another Leverage show, The Leverages, The Leverage Masters, and we'll talk to you then. Thanks so much for listening. Oh, and Gina, Bye, I don't know how to play the outro. I don't know. I got you know it. how to do it? I I, I'm like, it. I don't know how I to do the do. outro. <laughs> oh, you're so funny. I'll have to teach you how to do that it. next time. All Bye, right, everyone. we'll do that next time. Bye, everyone. Thanks so much. Tune in next week for another episode of Leverage Master.